A wide and complex variety of B vitamins are essential for the body to convert food into cellular energy. Unfortunately, we don't get as many as we need from our diets. Additionally, certain medications like metformin and birth control drugs can hinder our body's ability to get B vitamins from our diets. When this happens, we can become vitamin B deficient. This can be problematic as our bodies use these vitamins for a variety of biological processes. One of the key roles of B vitamins is to serve as prime cofactors for the Krebs cycle, the biochemical pathway responsible for maintaining energy production. When this suffers, we don't quite make the same energy we once had. Low B vitamins can lead to feelings of fatigue, weakness, low mood, headaches, and even PMS. Supplementing with B vitamins is a very easy way to introduce these essential vitamins back into our systems. But you want to avoid synthetic B vitamins like cyanocobalamin and folic acid that many bodies can't convert to the active forms and instead opt for methyl or hydroxylcobalamin options for B12 and methylfolate for B9. These are easier for your body to absorb and use, especially if you have MTHFR variants. We carry capsule and sublingual B vitamins named Methyl B Complex and Sublingual Methyl Bs on our website. Use code B vitamins for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Yeah, so this happens in everybody, but with the loss of estrogen, the polyol pathway is amplified, particularly in the liver. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Betty Murray. Today, we're going to discuss how changes in estrogen, both too much during perimenopause and not enough after menopause, lead to metabolic changes in the cells that slow your metabolism and how your genetics that control estrogen detoxification may lead to weight gain and risk for diabetes, obesity, and cancer. And lastly, how menopause interferes with a key cellular fat switch and what foods turn that fat switch on. She's going to share her three diet rules that may need to be broken to lose weight and keep it off for life. You're going to hear lots of new information on today's show. You're not going to want to miss this. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Betty Murray, who's a nutrition expert, PhD researcher, certified functional medicine practitioner, and speaker. Betty helps women over 40 harness their hormones to lose weight, optimize sleep, restore energy, and thrive in life. During her research for her PhD, Betty made four key discoveries that lead to hormone and metabolic imbalances that plague women over 40. Restoring balance to these key metabolic and hormone pathways is the basis of her hormone reset program. This program has helped her and hundreds of her clients lose weight easily, reduce hot flashes, restore sleep, and turn their energy without living on a diet of deprivation. She's also the host of the Menopause Mastery Podcast and the founder and CEO of Living Well Dallas Functional Medicine Center. She's also a frequently featured nutrition expert on Fox News Broadcasting, CW33, NBC, and CBS. Welcome to the show, Betty. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, tell us your story. So how did helping women harness their hormones become your passion? So, you know, I think like most people in this community, you know, I'd love to say, I just knew that this is the way to go. <laughs> I would say I had inklings of that, but I, you know, I had to go through my own health crisis and health problems, you know, just like anybody else. And so I was a kid of the 80s. I actually wanted to go to medical school. But when I got into college, I thought, you know, that seems like so much time and effort. It was lazy, just flat out lazy. So I ended up, you know, getting into business school and going through business school and kind of went about my career. And I ended up actually getting kind of swept into the early technology boom in the early 90s. I have a pretty strong capacity for anything technical, scientific. So 
you know, to me, it sort of made sense. I was marrying the business side and the tech side. And what really happened was I, you know, I was working 100 hours a week and I had these digestive digestive problems that would come and go, you know, when I was younger. And it's the thing you would blow off. You're like, well, that's not too bad. It started getting worse and worse and it became chronic. And I finally buckled down and, and went to the doctor. And lo and behold, after a lot of doctor hopping and trying to figure out what it was, I was diagnosed with colitis. My first statement to the gastroenterologist could there be anything I'm doing with my diet or could I change with my diet to change the trajectory of my disease? Logical and question. Yeah, logical question. <laughs> he barked this laugh in my face and said, it has nothing to do with what you're eating. And I was like, I have a tendency to be a little sarcastic as well. And I said, well, you know, even a five-year-old could tell you that food is going to make a difference on your digestive system. And so I, at that moment, was kind of like, okay, I'm, I am going to find out what's going on with me. But at the time, I was already sort of on this road. I got to figure out my stress. I got to figure out this other stuff. I was taking yoga and teaching yoga and trying to get that part of my life together. And so finding nutrition and functional medicine helped me sort of repair my gut, get rid of that autoimmune condition. And, you know, knock on wood, I've been, you know, flare free for over a decade and a half. So that was great. But I hit my 40s. And it was like the wheels came off the bus. I started having acne. My hair started falling out. I started gaining weight, despite the fact that I was doing what I had been doing in my 30s just fine. And I had been a bodybuilder into that sort of community, know how to manipulate your macros and, you know, work out properly. So it wasn't like I wasn't doing all the right things. And, you know, I kind of did what everybody does, sort of jump in, try and fix yourself. And then, you know, had friends of mine, doctors that worked with me and, you know, some of them that worked in my clinic and some of them I knew through the community, put me on thyroid, put me on testosterone, do progesterone, all these other things. And while some of my symptoms got better, it never really corrected what was going on. And I spent pretty much my entire decade of my 40s fighting about 30 pounds that I put on, literally couldn't get off. So as a nutritionist, you could imagine, I'm like, no, I don't want to talk weight loss. I was like, I'll do your autoimmune complex health problems. We got it. But I was like, if I can't figure out my own biochemistry, how the hell am I supposed to help somebody? And so, you know, leads me to my PhD. So I go back to find my PhD. And that's when I start digging. And I'm like, okay, there's got to be something unique about me that a good 20 to 30% of other women going through this transition goes through. And so that's how I ended up kind of on this hormone path, because it was my own experience. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, so let's get into weight loss advice then. So Weight loss advice is often simplified down to the idea that, you know, cutting carbs to control insulin will result in fat burning or that slow thyroid could be the cause of weight gain or stress could cause weight gain, all of which you've kind of mentioned, which all, all I think are also true. But you say that this view is short sighted and misses other key hormones that could be causing this yo-yo weight gain and weight loss resistance. So what did you discover? Like what's not being talked about? Yeah. So I think there's there's some statistics here that I think are important. So it's estimated 90% of women will experience some weight gain as they go in through menopause, that transition. So obviously that can be on average anywhere from eight to 10 years. And then our metabolism as females slows 5% for every decade over 20. So over 20 years old. So we have this automatic sort of slowing of things. Yeah. And, and, Shoot. <laughs> and, and statistically, most women, when they hit that transitional period, you know, especially as they get towards the crunch period of menopause, we really see a 10 to 15% increase in body fat and body weight. So in a 150 pound woman, that's 15 to 20, 25 pounds, you know, so that's quite a bit on a woman's frame. 
And to me, it seemed like we were paying this really exorbitant price as a woman for reproductive function, you know? And it's important to know that we're designed also as women to conserve in a much stronger way than men because we have to be able to reproduce, right? We have to be able to carry a a fetus to term, you know? So if we look at the statistics today, 88% of Americans are insulin resistant. So those hormones are absolutely playing. But what we have is this metabolic inflexibility. Our body basically says, I'm going to burn sugar. I'm going to make sugar. And I'm going to hold on to body fat. And it, that at the core of it, insulin resistance is part of that. But when I started really digging, we know, and I'm sure you talk about a lot on your show, that in that perimenopausal state, when progesterone's already declining because we're already losing fertility, that estrogen being high relative to that makes us dominant and that makes us more insulin resistant. But the really interesting thing is it also changes a bunch of cellular mechanisms. So it's the, it's the loss of and the excess of estrogen particularly relative to those other hormones that will drive this sort of big metabolic changes. And then you start to get into the cellular stuff where the rubber really hits the road. But at the very least of it, most women going through this are insulin resistant at some point. And then they also have this fluctuating level of estrogen behind it that is either driving greater insulin resistance or affecting the body's ability to actually use the mechanics inside the cell when they go through menopause. So insulin resistance is a big, big part of that, I think, right, is, is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. The other thing is, is all these hormones work together. Insulin works with estrogen, works with the thyroid, works with the adrenal. And you can't ignore one and look at the others, right? They all have to kind of be looked at together. I think a lot of what was happening to me is I had clinicians putting me on thyroid, putting me on progesterone, and then they try testosterone. But we had to blow back a little bit further and go, you know, for me, I think a big part of it too was that adrenal stress, like how much stress am I driving? How much am I not sleeping? Um, Because that's going to cause pretty serious metabolic derangement. So those bigger mechanisms are now driving the messengers to the cell to give the wrong message, essentially, because that's what hormones are. They're big messengers. And then Mm -hmm. we get into the cell and that's where we get into the really geeky stuff. I don't know whether I should let you keep talking or <laughs> ask another question because there's just so much I think we want to unpack. And I want to come back to insulin resistance, but I also want to go back to in your bio and in your story, you talked about getting this PhD. And so, you know, through that journey, you found that menopause changes can slow cellular metabolism and turn on this fat switch. And so I want to know more about what those changes are. I mean, you kind of alluded to some of them, but I know there's more to unpack there. So maybe let's go there. Yeah. So I was talking just a minute ago about these things that happen kind of outside the cell, these these messenger systems, communication systems to the cells, which is our hormones. So inside the cell, I found this fascinating. Um, so inside the cell, we can either burn in our powerhouse, our, our mitochondria, and the mitochondria make things. But right now, for our argument, we'll simplify it down to the mitochondria require oxygen, okay? And so like muscle cells and brain cells have lots of mitochondria, other cells have less. But at the end of the day, they need a lot of oxygen for that powerhouse to work. So think of it as kind of a coal burning plant. And then you also have the ability to burn fuel out in the squishy part of the cell called the cytosol. So I like to think of that as a campfire. So the campfire can generate heat and energy, but it's much less than what you can do in the powerhouse. And it doesn't last very long. That's why you can't sprint for an hour. I like to think of it as my mitochondria is a Tesla. My campfire out in the cytosol is a 1984 Yugo. 
it can get me where it's going, but it's not going to go fast. So when we look mechanistically on what's what's happening, there's always this thought that the mitochondria are the same between men and women. You know, in most of the studies until you get to the 2000s really left women out because of our pesky hormones were just troublesome. And so we, they didn't even study women. So what we found was, is that women, when our estrogen starts to decline and especially fluctuating, but particularly when you hit menopause, one of the pathways inside the cell that affects how we metabolize either glucose and or fructose is a thing called the polyol pathway. And the polyol pathway is a mechanism. It's a, it's a body saving mechanism. It's a, it's a starvation mechanism our body goes through to take glucose, convert it to a thing called sorbitol. Yes, that's a sugar alcohol. And then it converts it to fructose. And then fructose, when it goes into the powerhouse, it is uncontrolled. So glucose has an insulin control. So think of that as the door gets opened a little bit and a little bit of glucose gets through. But fructose is just a free for all, particularly to the liver. So inside the liver, this pathway gets turned up. So essentially what happens is we will convert more of our glucose circulating to fructose, which is essentially like drinking beer without the buzz. So we get all of the metabolic damage from alcohol without the, the, the fun and excitement of having a buzz. And so inside the liver, it starts to shut down the liver's capacity to make energy at the right rate in the mitochondria. So think of it as now it is this polyol pathway activity is making the mitochondria run at half speed. Is this only in women? It happens in women oh. and men, but it accelerates okay. because of the loss of estrogen. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure I heard that connection. Yeah. yeah. So this happens in everybody, but with the loss of estrogen, the polyol pathway is amplified, particularly in the liver. If I'm already insulin resistant, that means I'm insulin resistant in the liver. I'm going to do this at a much greater degree. You know, so it basically slows that powerhouse and overwhelms the powerhouse. So it, in turn, the liver then goes through the technical term is de novo lipogenesis. So everybody, that's going to be a spelling test at the end of this podcast. But what's really happening is it says, okay, instead of making fuel out of it and burning it at top speed, I'm going to make fat out of it. So it raises triglyceride production and fat storage in the liver and then the adipose tissue, the fat tissue. Shoot. And, and so I was like, oh, well, that might explain why we might be doing the same thing we were doing before and it's not working. One of the switches inside the cell that controls this sort of up down, so turn the power up, turn the power down. This was found by Rick Johnson's work and a bunch of other individuals that worked with him is an increase in a metabolite called uric acid inside the cell. So uric acid inside the cell is the cell turning down the power burning, turning on fat storage, and it is part of a cell sort of safety mechanism. So when we go through menopause, statistically, women's uric acid level automatically climbs. So I come across that research and I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. So we automatically start to skirt those higher ends because everybody thinks of uric acid, if they're even aware of it, as this thing that causes gout. Gout, yeah. Yeah, but uric but it's, acid... It's an independent cardiovascular risk factor. So that stinks. Yeah, again, yeah. Which, Not good for longevity. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Which does this make a case though? I, I'm kind of cutting you off, but does this make a case for intervening in women who are estrogen deficient for sooner estrogen replacement therapy? I would say yes, because yeah. statistically, estrogen, when it's balanced, actually it has a leanness effect. It, it increases our body's ability to maintain lean muscle mass. But when it's too high or too low, it's, it's yeah. going to throw it off. Good. Okay. Continue. Sorry. 
So uric acid, so uric acid, if you get a uric acid level on a blood test and it's over 4, 4.2, the fat switch is on. It is the switch. So all animals that hibernate, so bears, some of the squirrels that hibernate, the controlled mechanism in which they gain weight is the activation of uric acid inside the cell at the mitochondria. I never knew that. Yes. Yes. Slowing the mitochondria. And what are they eating to do it? Or sugar? Yeah, okay. Fructose especially. Sugar for sure, but fructose okay. especially. So when women, our sensitivity to these changes are much greater, right? So our ability to control these metabolic sort of fat switching and storage starvation mechanisms aren't as robust because we've lost estrogen. So you're saying a bear who's eating all these berries or squirrel, whatever, to stock up for the winter to hibernate, by eating all that sugar, their body's more converting it to fat to help them essentially conserve through the winter, right? which correlates with higher uric acid and lower estrogen. I just, I'm trying to summarize this. So the audience is taking this in. Is that right? Yes. So every animal that's a multi-cell organism has this mechanism. So for instance, like a caterpillar going from a caterpillar to a butterfly, the mechanism of that transition is uric acid inside the cell, which is just mind boggling to me. It is. It is. Yeah. So, so uric acid, this came about so we could survive an ice age as humans it's one of our conservation mechanisms, but it's just, you know, it, we trigger it all the time, right? And it's especially more sensitive when we're going through perimenopause and menopause. So there's two other ones I want to talk about because people yeah, are like, oh, please. Yeah, yeah. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. So on our, our fat cells, especially the stuff that we don't like, the jiggly bits, so the, the subcutaneous fat, the stuff on your junk in the trunk and the stuff on your thighs, the, the belly fat that you can see and jiggle, we don't really like that. The nervous system, so your nerves send down messengers and they innervate. So they sort of turn on that fat burning activity. So you have to get epinephrine, which is a nervous system neurotransmitter to open up the fat cell and dump the fat out and kind of get it out without epinectin. It's what transports it. The nervation at those subcutaneous fat is sensitive to the activity of estrogen. And so that nervous system mechanism to help you burn body fat on the outside of the muscle is depleted when we go through menopause. So we work and work and work and we're like, why do my pants not fit differently? And it's because number one, the body burns fat through the muscle tissue first. So I like to think of the muscle tissue kind of looks like prime rib. So it's fat striated. So we have to burn through all of that first. And then we have to burn through the stuff on the outside And our nervous system isn't as responsive to the stuff on the outside. So it's harder to get rid of that junk in the trunk and the jiggly bits that we don't love. And then the very last one is glucose. So blood sugar that's coming into the cell appropriately has a transporter called GLUT4. GLUT4 is what they call a passive transport. So it doesn't have, it's not like a doorman grabs a hold of glucose and marches it to the powerhouse and says, you know, go in. It's this slow sort of passive transport. So I like to think of that as maybe a slight incline. You know, if you've ever been a kid, like trying to go down a hill on a snowstorm on your little sleds, it's like it's not really that good of a hill. So you have to kind of get out and push on your own. So it's kind of like that. It's not this great, you know, ski slope. It's a very low minimum grade. So imagine it's kind of the glucose just slowly slides through the cell to the mitochondria. So we have kind of a slow access to our glucose. So all of that means 
that everything sort of slows down. And so that's what's driving these metabolic changes that happen to be true for women, but not so much true for men. Okay. A lot, a lot, a lot. I want to ask more questions, but I also want to get into genetics and then come back around to kind of the insulin resistance too. But tell us about kind of genetics. I know a lot of individuals are seeing nutritionists who are running different genetic analyses. We run them at the clinic. They're becoming very popular. So is part of the answer also in our genes, do you think? You know, if we look at our genetics, there's a percent of genetics that, you know, don't necessarily divine, de- design your hair color, eye color. And years ago, the, we called them, the, the scientists called them junk genes because they just didn't know what they did. Like they were unnecessary. They're kind of just junk, which isn't true. And a huge percentage of our genes encode for how we make proteins in the body, how we make enzymes, enzymatic activity. And there's several genes that happen to affect how estrogen gets metabolized. So think of it as how estrogen sort of gets packaged up in a multi-step process to get thrown in the trash. I started looking at those, number one, because I had quite a few mutations on several of these pathways. And I thought, hmm, outside of me being a woman in her 40s with too much estrogen, what else could be going on? And I found, obviously, I have very poor capacity to get my estrogen to the trash can. So a couple of those genes that have pretty good research out there showing they affect not only risk for things like cancer and cardiovascular disease, but they also affect how we detoxify estrogen. And they also have a relationship with obesity, metabolic syndrome, which is the precursor to diabetes and diabetes. And so one of them that a lot of people talk about is one called MTHFR which happens to do with folate. And I'm sure you've probably talked a lot about it. And so if I can't methylate, if I can't do that, I'm going to turn on a bunch of things genetically that I don't want. But then MTHFR also works with a gene called COMT, co-methyltransferase. And co-methyltransferase has two major roles. It helps us with the second stage of estrogen detox. But it also helps us clear out our catecholamines like epinephrine and norepinephrine and dopamine. And so depending on what combination I have from mom and dad, I'm either very quick at clearing those things or very slow at clearing those things. What they found was the people that were slow at clearing the catecholamines and slow at sort of packaging their estrogen had a higher risk for metabolic syndrome and obesity, particularly as they go through menopause and perimenopause, even though the circulating level of estrogen is now declining in menopause. And those individuals also, that's me. I got a double whammy with COMT. Maybe you do as as well, but I feel like that does increase. I talk about this in my book, kind of the chance for that adrenaline storm or, you know, heightened anxiety where you just can't clear out those catecholamines, that adrenaline. And so, you know, if I'm easily triggered and already on the fence and already wired, I got to be careful because I can, I feel like be more, I'll just say easily triggered, whatnot, more prone to that anxiety piece. Yeah. So just knowing your genes is, I think, very powerful, very helpful. So yes, continue. Yes. So so COMT obviously plays a big role. And the prevalence of mutations, particularly slow clearance people, depending on which study you read, is is easily in the 50%. So most of us have issues. And if you think about it, nature probably selected for that. You know, I think of the prairie dogs. So the prairie dog that was chilling at the bottom of the little prairie dog stack and, the, you know, never came out and popped its head out didn't probably make it, but the one that was watching and paying attention made it. So those of us that are a little wound tight are probably (laughs) better at watching for predators and prey and those kind of things over time. So nature selected for that. So it was good, but it also sets us up for adrenal problems and estrogen problems. 
There's another gene called CYP1B1, which is the first phase of metabolism, one of the first phase metabolites of estrogen. And it is when you're mutated there, it is associated where estrogen gets made into a very toxic byproduct. And that includes any plasticizers, herbicides, any anything else that looks like estrogen. And so when you're mutated there, you make a bunch of this metabolite. The thing is, is, is those metabolites, if you don't get rid of them, you can't get them all the way to the trash can. So think each step is like, okay, I'm cleaning out the closet. That's step one. So if I take the closet stuff and I throw it on the floor in the middle of my entryway, because I can't get it to the garage, which is passing it to CUMT, it's going to get stuck. The problem is, is that metabolite, that kind of broken estrogen is metabolically active. It will click into all the receptors for your estrogen and stimulate those receptors, but not in a way that's really positive. So it's kind of like having a skeleton key that you can get into the lock, but it doesn't quite unlock the door, but you can sort of partially unlock it. And so it turns on all these receptors. And so it's associated when you've got mutations there with breast cancer risk, ovarian cancer risk, obesity, insulin resistance. And so those combinations, if women are walking around with them, they're often going to have problems. And a lot of times, like I find, and I'm sure you probably do, that women are probably like, you know, they're the ones that have fibroids, heavy periods, <laughs> all the all the ugly stuff in the 40s. That was me. And then what's interesting, you would think when your estrogen declines and it's flat, you would think all those problems go away, but they don't because you still have fat cells making estrogen. You still have, you have your tissues like breast tissue that have residual estrogen hanging out. You just don't have the protective estradiol actually using the keyhole that's intentional for it. I'm still like, you asked the question about estrogen replacement and estradiol replacement. Yeah, I would replace it before somebody's depleted and I would continue to replace it appropriately. You may have heard me mention the nutrient DIM on several episodes, and I want to take a moment to describe exactly what that is. When I was in graduate school, my doctorate focused on estrogen metabolism. Now, you're probably wondering what that even means and why it matters to your health. Well, research has shown that our risks for fibroids, cysts, and breast, ovarian, uterine, prostate, and colon cancer can all be linked back to estrogen, but it's not the levels of estrogens that can increase our risk. Instead, it's the way our bodies handle that estrogen that matters. We can run individual lab tests for this, which I often recommend to my patients. That's called estrogen metabolism testing, which has to be done in the urine. Even without the test, however, it is safe to take a supplement and extract of cruciferous vegetables to improve your estrogen metabolism. That's basically like taking in six pounds of those veggies per day in a capsule form without the gas. That supplement is called DIM, D-I-M. You can also use methylated B vitamins as well as specific targeted antioxidants like resveratrol to help improve your estrogen metabolism and help protect you from that cancer risk. Of course, also make sure you have your practitioner run a comprehensive genetic analysis to see from another perspective if you are at increased risk and help you learn what you can do to lower that. If you're interested in learning more about DIM, read chapter six of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, and check out our product info sheet at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash product forward slash DIM. To get 10% off DIM alone, use code DIM or to get 15% off our estrogen detox bundle with DIM methylated bees and antioxidant support, just use the code estrogen detox when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. All the while being aware of one's genetic variants and also test estrogen metabolism so that we can then support that. 
So many of my patients, I mean, for you know over a decade, we've been doing urine hormone testing, either through Genova or the Dutch test, which is also a urine, just dried urine test through um, Precision Analytical. So we can really see based on that test, how you are eliminating, as you're saying, taking out the trash, right, through various pathways. And then we can, the good news is here, ladies, we can intervene nutritionally. So let's go there. So what are some things we can do either via supplementation or you know, diet lifestyle changes to support estrogen metabolism, aka kind of taking out the, the trash, as you've said? Absolutely. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of urine metabolite testing. I, I personally feel that people shouldn't do hormones if they aren't checking those. I can say that I'm a nutritionist. I'm not prescribing, but I would agree with that. You know, so so looking at it, so we'll start with kind of the taking out the trash part first. So the nutritional things that affect those pathways are a lot of the foods that we hear about all the time that are healthy for you. So for instance, broccoli, broccoli sprouts, the brassica family, so even Brussels sprouts, kale. They all contain compounds called DIM or indole-3-carbonyl. Those are the protective pathway drivers of clearance to a cleaner estrogen metabolite. So not the bad one, the good one. So what they do is sort of push everything towards a cleaner estrogen pathway. You know, so if I'm eating a lot of brassica family foods, um, even genistine from non-GMO soy and flaxseed can do that. Caffeine, okay, caffeine's been vindicated as long as you're not fried on adrenaline. (laughs) But caffeine helps it. Your berries all sort of help that clean process. The other nasty side, the one that you don't want to have that might be amplified, that CYP1B1, gets modified by the flavonoids. So the bioflavonoids, citrus bioflavonoids, so eating citrus using lemon juice, grapefruit juice, your turmeric, all kind of push everything out of that bad pathway into the cleaner pathway. Hops, you know, so all of those things are things that I can do in my diet to help that first step. Then when you pass it to COMT, that's where you need your methylated folate, you need your methyl or, or if you're COMT, probably hydroxycobalamin. So the combination of B vitamins that you do can help make sure that you get that last step. So I joked about leaving your closet that you cleaned out in your entryway. COMT is going to pick it up and take it to the garage. And then the next step is I'm going to open the garage door and I have two routes that I can take it out. So I want to make sure that I have my B vitamins so I can get it to the garage. You know, and that also means doing lifestyle things like getting out plasticizer, herbicides, fake fragrances, phthalates, all that junk because they look like hormones to our body. That's those are easy things that we can do self-selectively without even adding supplements at that point. Obviously, we can supplement with things like indole-3-carbonyl, turmeric, all those things to help drive those pathways. You know, the other thing that I found interesting, so To me, I was very interested in that uric acid pathway, right? Because I was looking at it. And again, the research shows if it's over 4.2 on a lab, which is a very inexpensive lab, anybody could run. That means your fat switch is turned on. So I started looking at it. I was like, okay, so what raises uric acid? I have this uric acid pathway on my desk literally just today. Yeah. (laughs) This was so apropos. So... So obviously sugar, high fructose corn syrup, fructose, agave nectar, all honey, all those things can drive it quite high. So if you're eating a ton of fruit, particularly those very high fructose foods, you could be doing it. And we have some genetics where some people are way more likely to make uric acid and make it high. I had a woman years ago that had gout just because she ate fruit. Quite literally, just anything more than about a cup and a half a day, she would get gout. You know, who would know? The other things that drive uric acid up are some of the foods we love. So your olives, charcuterie, sausage, cheese, your aged foods, foods, nutritional yeast, wine, beer, because they've got 
remnants of RNA in it. They've got broken cells in it. So, so that those aged foods, well, I know I could probably speak for most women. If they knew their last meal was tonight, they would start with probably wine, have a bunch of cheese, have a bunch of salami and stuff like that. And a lot of women are like, that's what I do for dinner real quickly, but they might be eating enough of it that they're driving it up all the time. And it's turning on that fat switch. So I also look at how much of that stuff I'm eating. You don't have to remove all of it, but you don't want that to be a gigantic part of your diet, along with a lot of fruit or high fructose corn syrup and other fructose. You know, those are easy, easy, easy things that you can do. You know, and one of the other things that they found when they were looking at uric acid is, remember that polyol pathway I was talking about where your body converts perfectly good glucose into fructose, which preferentially gets stored as fat in your liver and store as fat in your fat cells, when you are dehydrated, just mildly, let's say I, I'm eating a... I'm taking a drink of water right now. <laughs> yeah. Let's say I'm eating a quinoa and broccoli, right? So quinoa, pretty healthy grain, you know, if you're a grain eater, and I'm pretty dehydrated. As I metabolize that, it's going to mobilize the carbohydrates to glucose in the bloodstream. The fructokinase enzyme and urease enzymes are going to activate, and we're going to get a conversion of glucose to sorbitol to fructose in the bloodstream because the body sees dehydration as starvation, which is, this is all the starvation response. This is all the body starvation things. So, so quite literally, you could be eating healthy foods, chronically dehydrated and triggering some of this conversion of your glucose circulating from healthy foods into fructose. The degree in which that happens, I don't have good data on, but they know it does it. Because you can see the change in uric acid. So so even dehydration could do that. So those are all things. Drink more water in between meals. Don't go into a really high carbohydrate meal dehydrated. You know, if you're cheating that day and you're having a gluten-free pizza or something, make sure you're really well hydrated because that's going to be a triple threat. High carb, high uric acid foods, lots of cheese. <laughs> so I literally, I was I was just looking over this uric acid kind of pathway. And you were talking about some purine rich foods, fructose, alcohol, kind of purine rich foods. So my understanding is that purine converts to xanthine and then that to uric acid. What can inhibit xanthine's conversion to uric acid is things like quercetin, celery seed extract, some polyphenols, which you've mentioned, and then luteol and whatnot. So some companies are really, literally trying to capitalize on this, which is very smart, like in, in that they're creating uric acid lowering <laughs> products. <laughs> That this whole conversation is just, I guess, begging the importance of, A, getting uric acid levels checked also. I mean, I, I just need to check that in more of my patients. And I, I had intended on it just starting to look into this, but you're having this conversation is just echoing that importance. But looking back at this pathway, too, just for the listeners, what this pathway indicates is that vitamin C will increase urinary excretion of uh, uric acid, too. So vitamin C, I think, could be very helpful. Having elevated uric acid, again, I already mentioned also, okay, so you're saying can lead to packing on the pounds, but also it can increase vasoconstriction, increase CRP, increase fibrinogen and ferritin, all these cardiovascular risks. So now weight aside, you know, heart disease is a top leading cause of death and having high uric acid can increase cardiovascular risk. So all the more reason why we want to get it down. So yeah, tangent there on the uric acid, but that's good. That's great. Yeah, no, Rick Johnson's work when they, cause he's, so he's a nephrologist, right? So he's a researcher nephrologist. I think he's been published like 300 times. They were looking at uric acid in its role because of vasoconstriction and hypertension, high blood pressure. And they found that uric acid was absolutely causative for hypertension. So it's not correlative. It's not going along with it. It drives it. And it also drives cardiovascular damage. So quite literally, it's part of the mechanism 
So it is something important. And the problem is we don't look at it unless somebody has gout. Right, right. That's what you remember from school. You know, that's the, yeah. Okay, so you've you've mentioned so many things here. So how do we address all these issues with women to kind of rebalance their hormones and cellular metabolism? Like, where do we start? Let's kind of start summarizing some of this. Yeah. So, so if we look at it, so the first thing, obviously the, the detoxing of estrogen and helping make sure that you've got it kind of on, on balance. And, and like I said, I don't prescribe, but I do, I do think that we need hormone replacement, very well balanced, very well managed and very well tested because it is protective. Those things aside. So I start looking at my diet, right? And, you know, if we were to just take a very easy plate and say, okay, I'm not going to be very good at, I don't have as much freedom with carbs. Right. Because this is what this means is I don't have as much freedom with carbs, but I also don't have a lot of freedom with a lot of high purine foods, those aged foods. But if I were to look at a plate, if half of my plate is your low carb above ground growing vegetables. Right. So it's an easy way to think of it. It grows above ground. That's pretty much going to be a, a low carb food. And especially if I eat a lot of those things like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, your green leafies, you know, variety of them. And especially those brassica family, you want to cook them or at least steam them or or potentiate them by parboiling for just a moment because that helps break down some of the anti-nutrients and things in them. But if half of my plate is there, I'm going to drive a bunch of those pathways. I'm also not going to drive up that uric acid and I'm not going to trigger that sorbitol pathway. So eating a lot of high fiber vegetables absolutely will help that. If I look at my protein intake, I want adequate amounts of protein, right, to to help my body maintain and build muscle mass. But when we are heavily insulin resistant and we have these mechanisms turned on in the liver, what the other thing I found is that women have a increased activity of gluconeogenesis. So that fancy word for saying my body's going to take protein either that I eat or off of my muscle. It's going to break it down in the amino acids and use it to make glucose. So I want to eat protein, but I don't want to eat so much of it that I may be driving it. So sometimes when we're fixing this, we may have to watch how much somebody eats because I kept hearing women saying, oh, I'm making sure I'm getting my protein. And so they were like, okay, I'm eating two chicken breasts. And then I had a stick of broccoli and it was good. I'm like, okay, that's probably not what we need to do. So we want protein, but we don't want to make sure that we're drizzling in a ton of protein all day long without getting vegetables, right? Without getting those things, those 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 ingredients that help clear those pathways and make things work. And then, you know, this is the other place where you can do things like, like supplementation. So I can do things like my luteolin or quercetin, which helps clear uric acid, vitamin C. I can do um, even things like DIM to help clean up estrogen. You know, some of the other things I like too is berberine. So berberine is a fantastic, it's like one of my favorite herbs. Just if you could hug a herb, I would hug berberine. Berberine acts like a very moderate metformin. And what metformin does is slow down gluconeogenesis. So it keeps your body from making a bunch of glucose out of amino acids. And it also helps the cell utilize glucose more efficiently. And so I use quite a bit of berberine because I can just help the body be more efficient. Sometimes berberine can cause a little bit of digestive upset. So we may want to introduce it a little bit slowly. Um, but it, it, is, it is a good herb to help that. So those things can be added in as well. Which cycles back around to the insulin resistant piece we kind of started the podcast with. So I'm glad you brought that in. Berberine, I use a lot of for as an antimicrobial, also as something to help with insulin resistance. 
But if you have MAO variants, it can worsen anxiety. So there's kind of a little bit of a caveat with that. You got to be careful, but usually patients tolerate that really well. Yeah. So I, let's go to some kind of recipes because you were kind of just already mentioning what how we should be eating. But because you're a nutrition expert, I kind of want to hear some of your favorite recipes. Maybe just tell us how you're eating to help balance hormones, lose weight. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a pretty simple cook, you know, Me too. <laughs> I'm kind of the open the refrigerator and what's in there gets thrown into a pan. I make a lot of like stir fry things. So I'm always going to have some sort of green, green leafy, green vegetable. So the nice thing about stir fries, if you think of it this way, you cut up a bunch of vegetables, whatever you have. So I love having some of the sulfur rich vegetables, like your onions, your garlic, capsaicin rich things like peppers and because they also have you know lycopene and other things like the orange and red ones and then obviously a lot of broccoli kale those kind of things sauteing it it depends on what flavor i want that day so i could get some of these nutrients by using things like turmeric and a stir fry so i can actually get it in my diet and and make it so it's very easy to do that you know so that almost always is one of the bases in my in my recipe because most most people think stir fry, they think Asian food, right? Which means you're adding soy. But really, it is the act of getting a pan hot, getting some clean oil in there, and then sauteing that. that. Yes, break that down. What oil do you use? Yeah, tell our listeners everything. Yeah, yeah so I, I go back and forth. So I have a gene variant that um, I do not tolerate high saturated fats. So I do not use coconut oil, just because my body loves to pack on weight with that. So I use avocado oil. It is a seed oil, but you know my my options there are, are a little limited. Um, so I use avocado oil as the the base, and then you can change those any kind of spicing to change what it tastes like. But I use that cooking method mostly because I can cook in about ten minutes. You might already know that insulin resistance can lead to weight gain, but did you know that it also is one of the leading causes of death for its role in diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's? Diet changes are essential when it comes to combating insulin resistance, but additional nutrients can also help. The one I recommend the most? Berberine. Berberine is a plant extract that has been used in Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine for over 2,500 years. In addition to its long history, modern clinical trials have demonstrated that berberine supports cardiovascular health in a number of important synergistic ways. These include helping you maintain blood pressure, support healthy heart contraction and rhythm, and support healthy cholesterol and glucose levels. Our berberine support product also contains alpha-lipoic acid, or ALA, which has been shown to support blood sugar balance and is also a powerful antioxidant that scavenges free radicals. It's wonderful for maintaining healthy blood vessel and circulatory health. Consider taking the Synergistic Blend daily, or especially if you eat more than normal or indulge over the holidays or a birthday, where it should help reduce blood sugar spikes. Check out our product info sheet at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash product forward slash berberine hyphen support. To get 10% off berberine support, use code berberine at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now, let's get back to the show. And then, I'm, you know, you can add your protein there. Um, we had lamb last night, which I hadn't had lamb in a long time. It was so good. But then what it, for this patient population, how do you feel about like the gluten-free grains? So the quinoa and the rice, is it like portion sizes we really need to be cautious with that are those acceptable? Yeah, you know, so like what I what I do in my programs and what I had to do for myself, and I would say this is true for a lot of people, when all of these mechanisms have been fired up for a while, right? Often we have to we have to take a sledgehammer to a finishing nail. 
in order for it to change. And people hate hearing that and they don't love it, but it's true because you got to remember these are, this is your body protecting itself. It's your body doing what it thinks it needs to do, which is make sure you survive a starvation event. And so in the beginning, I don't use gluten-free grains. We pull out the grain-based foods. We pull out the legumes. So we, we go very paleo and we go pretty low carb. And I also make sure we're not giving so much fat that the body doesn't have to dig into its own fat. We get adequate protein. So in the beginning, we might get pretty low carb. But again, if you get too low carb and you're pushing a little too much protein, I think the liver and some people do gluconeogenesis. That just hasn't been studied, particularly in women, directly. So in the beginning, we do that. And then because what we're looking for is metabolic flexibility. Because the other thing I knew I didn't want to be stuck with the rest of my life was that I wasn't allowed to eat a carb ever again or... You know what I mean? Like I, I nobody like, wants that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have to starve myself, you know, in, where I just had entire food groups missing. The other thing is if we regain metabolic flexibility, we should be able to rotate in some of these macros, like rotate in starchy foods. And so for most of my women, we do, you know, some modified intermittent fasting and other things to sort of help the body kind of force itself to become more efficient. And then we, we rotate some macros and every person's a little different. Like I have terrible genetics for starchy foods. Like I, I'm double mutated on Amy one and I'm double mutated on APOA two. I, I can't process fats, nor can I process carbs. I was like, ah, oh, everything's illuminated, <laughs> but, but I do eat carbs. I eat more carbs today than I ever have in my life, but I rotate them in and out because I've created metabolic flexibility. So often we have to kind of do it in multiple stages. So if somebody's really struggling, we might not be able to do that moderation game in the beginning. Sure. Makes sense. What about three diet rules that may need to be broken to lose weight? Are there any, any of those? Some of the things that I also found was interesting is, you know, when we have fake sweeteners, right? So especially the, the ones we hopefully nobody's using the pink, yellow or blue packet, right? Those are toxic to some degree, but the other thing is, is when we taste sweet on the tongue, it starts the digestive process. We are, we start producing amylase. We start, we respond with insulin as if you're getting something. And we know that a lot of those sweeteners also alter the gut microbiome. Well, what's interesting is I started looking at it. Remember I mentioned sorbitol. Sorbitol is used in a lot of like candies and things. Thankfully, we don't use it a lot in your kind of non-caloric sweeteners. But people, like I have a lot of people that are like, I chew gum because it keeps me from eating. Right. I'm like, well, what's your sweetener in your gum? Because it's probably sorbitol that is triggering all of this behind the scenes sort of activity. So sometimes we need to remove even these healthy sort of fake sweeteners mm-hmm. because we're triggering all of these mechanisms. I don't tolerate any of those. I just uh, I think yeah, patients think they're doing the right thing, but they're, no, a little they're not. Yeah. yeah. But even that, you know, you got to remember your body thinks it's coming. Our body does not know it's non-caloric. It thinks there's calories there. Good point. Any other rules or those kind of main ones? So that's rule number one. Alluded to the other one, you got to stay hydrated, right? You never go into a meal dehydrated. Even if you have to kind of pound some water right beforehand, it's real important to be hydrated. You know, not only does it speed up the metabolism, but it's because of that. It's because of that polyol pathway activity. You know, and then I would say the other thing is watch how much foods you may be eating that are in that purine rich sort of pathway. And the other part too is, the natural flavoring. So I know that you and I are kind of strong about this. So a lot of the food additives that we have put in foods in the last 50 years, the flavor enhancements, the whether it says natural flavoring or not, MSG, texturized vegetable protein, autolyzed yeast extracts, 
Those are euphemisms for MSG, and they are all uric acid raising. They're I didn't know they were uric acid raising. Okay. Yeah, they're obesogens. And so they're going to yeah. drive that pathway. I think they drive it very quickly. And I, I, what I don't know is my curiosity is, do they have the capacity to do it inside the cell and that we don't see it in the blood? Because, you know, blood's a proxy for what's mm-hmm. happening. Can't really measure what's happening in the cell. Yeah. Yep. I, I yep. wonder if they have the capacity to cross that cellular membrane and do it inside the cell. Because if you look at the obesity epidemic, I mean, you and I are close in age. In the 70s, like my dad was the, the overweight dude. Like we just, there wasn't many people that were seriously overweight. Mm-hmm. And, and now you look around and it everywhere. I know. That's a huge change. So in our- sad. Yep. Uh, this has been so good. Tell us where listeners can find you, where your clinic is, where you practice. Yeah. Awesome. So you can find me online at Betty Murray and the last name is spelled M-U-R-R-A-Y. First name is B-E-T-T-Y dot com. You can find my clinic at livingwelldallas.com. I'm fairly active on Instagram and I also have a podcast called Menopause Mastery where we talk about all these kind of fun things. So you can definitely find me there. Awesome. Awesome. I know you have a quiz also for our listeners. So tell us about that, where they can find it. So we have a quiz because I alluded to that usually there's hormonal imbalances happening and I hate to break it to you. It's usually not just one. And so this quiz is designed to sort of help you figure out what's the most dominant kind of hormonal imbalance that may be driving some of your weight gain and those kind of things. And so it's, it's great. You get your own kind of personalized report based off of your results. Wonderful. Okay. You've enlightened us so much today, but if you had to narrow down all of your tips to one, what would your top longevity tip be? You know, I think um, truly we need to do whatever we can to control for stress. If we look at the metabolic effects of stress and cortisol and our body's sort of response to that, that it is very hard to get and stay well with a body that's hair on fire, stressing out all the time. And for me, that's been like probably one of the most profound, profound things I had to control for. I had to get the sleep. I had to make sure I was taking time. I tried. Believe me, I was like, can I take a bunch of pills and sleep when I'm dead? It doesn't work. Yeah, been there. Yeah, been there as well. Turn it down. We live a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about, as you said, what hasn't been talked about. A lot of what you mentioned, we haven't talked about on the show yet. So this was, again, very enlightening. Thankful for your PhD that you discovered this and you were able to share it with my audience. This was awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me so much. Like I said, that was lots of new information and I so appreciated her sharing. One huge take home for me was that I truly need to be testing more of my patients' uric acid levels. And as a listener, I hope you heard how important not being dehydrated is and how important filling your plate with veggies first is. If you haven't had urine hormone testing and you're a current patient, please call the clinic and we'll get you tested. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting.
The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.